If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. If it's inspired you and you're able to support this podcast starting at just $1 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. With this being an independent platform, I am looking for more support to be able to continue the show. So thank you so much if you're already a patron. It helps a lot and I really do appreciate it. By showing compassion that, and showing that you care about the other person's well-being as much as your own and that this is a collective issue. It's not that I'm doing it to score political points. It's because I care about you and the future generations. That was Matthew Goldberg, a postdoctoral associate in the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, whose research focuses on the role of values, ideology, and social identity in persuasion and social influence. Stay tuned as we're about to explore how climate change came to be so politicized, what we need to do to engage more people in these discussions, and to raise the level of public consensus to match scientific consensus, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I was an athlete as a kid. I played all kinds of sports. I became interested in football and then wrestling and then mixed martial arts fighting. Uh, and through those experiences and through my focus, I want to understand human motivation. Uh, so part of it was self-driven. I wanted to learn how to push myself to the limit. But then it kept expanding from there. So I became interested in psychology pretty much the, within the first few classes of my undergraduate studies. And uh, I eventually learned that I could do this kind of intellectual growth through uh becoming a professor someday. Uh, so that's what I set out to do. And uh, so I went to get my PhD in social psychology. And I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to study. I just knew that it was social psychologically oriented. But then I had an experience in which I got some terrible feedback on my first class and I felt so threatened by it that I couldn't believe it. 
that that and that people's responses to belief threatening information became my my object of study where I wanted to understand how people respond to to information they disagree with or that's critical of their beliefs or behavior and what we could do about that because I saw that as the key to to furthering society there are so many instances whether it be changing behaviors to improve health or to be more sustainable where people need to accept information that they they might not like so i used that as a guiding principle in my research going forward and then as i moved into my position here at yale i started to to think about well what are the most important issues i could apply this theoretical information to and that ended up being climate change and other environmental issues so in a national survey that your research team ran in April of 2019, you found that the American public underestimates how many other Americans think global warming is happening. Can you expand upon this research and the findings that this led you to? Yeah. So there, like any good study, this, this opens up more questions than it answers. So the, the main finding being that the American public underestimates how many other Americans care about the issue or even believe climate change is happening. And uh, so this opens a lot of questions into why that is, partly to do with the lack of coverage in the media and the lack of discussion. So that was uh, something that we followed up that study with is an investigation to uh, what people could learn through discussion. And we found that discussion with close friends and family does lead to increases in pro-climate beliefs over time. And so this is opening up a whole range of other questions into who the most trusted sources are. The reason why I started with, with close friends and families because, well, one, my, my graduate studies, my advisor is a relationship scientist, so very focused on close relationships and couples and how much how influential they could be to how people see themselves. Uh, so a lot of my work is focused on that. Can you speak to the exact numbers? So we grossly underestimate uh, how many other Americans think global warming is happening. What is that general number? And I'm aware that there are differences among different subgroups as well. Can you expand more on that as well? So the the American, the general U.S. population, of course, this will vary depending on the survey, but based on our numbers, so the actual percentage of the U.S. population in our latest surveys that believe climate change is happening is 69%. But the, the U.S. population on a whole estimates that it's 54%. So going from 69 to 54, that's pretty substantial. There are a lot of groups that are more accurate, although I hesitate to say accurate because it might not be driven by accuracy, but more driven by people believing that others believe the way that they do. Mm. So for example, liberal Democrats were the most accurate, giving their estimate at 63. Uh, so very close to the actual percentage of the U.S. population, but also liberal Democrats themselves are also most likely to believe that climate change is happening. So I think what we're seeing here, and this is what a lot of our future work will focus on, is pulling apart uh, people's objective sources of information. So where are they learning what others believe? Is it just through conversation with friends and family, through the media, and so on? And how much of it is simply driven by us being narrowed by believing that others in our group believe the way that we do? 
scientific consensus on anthropogenic climate change happening is at about 97%. So what do you think is the reason that our public consensus is only 69%, which is higher than we might expect, but still meaningfully lower than what the scientific community has, has come up with? Yeah, so some of it has to do with uh, media framing. There's a lot of researchers that have come out of our research center that are professors elsewhere now that have focused on the media's framing, particularly when it's framed as a debate, and especially when it's done over decades, in which it's like, some people believe climate change is happening, some don't, and uh, let's let's try and solve this. By framing it kind of as 50-50 makes it really difficult to move the needle on this. So I'd say that's one of the primary issues. Another one is the deliberate misinformation campaigns uh, driven by the fossil fuel industry. They their, their product is to sell doubt. So to the extent that they could make others believe that others agree with them uh, in their skepticism, then they could be more effective. And unfortunately, they've been very effective at doing that. Mm. So do you feel like we're more swayed by the media and the public than by what we know of the scientific consensus? It, it depends on who it's coming from and uh, whether people even have that information. So work that has come out of our lab and, and some work that I've published shows that the that when you do tell people that the scientific consensus is 97%, it is very persuasive. Mm. We're trying to parse the reasons why it is, one being that it's a very simple and highly effective message. So if it's coming from a highly authoritative source, and it's really easy to consume, that should be a, a recipe for an effective message. Mm. And on a similar note, in a study that was published in 2017 in the journal Social Psychology and Personality Science, researchers from the University of Illinois, Chicago, decided to find out if political ideology really made conservatives more skeptical of science in general or just skeptical of certain science issues in particular. And perhaps contrary to what we may think, the researchers found that liberals were just as likely as conservatives to interpret study results in a way that aligned with their preconceived beliefs, and both were equally likely to deny the credibility of results that conflicted with their views. So this means that although conservatives may be less likely than liberals to think that climate change is happening, it's not because they're more anti-science than liberals, because we all share having personal biases based on our preconceived beliefs. So if this is the case, why and how did climate change become such a partisan issue if we're all subject to biases when interpreting science? It's really difficult to say, uh, although there's there's some work in the literature that I could use to speculate as to why. One being uh, elite cues. Uh, so over the years, Republican elites in Congress and in the Senate have become more anti-environment. It's hard to say whether they have been influenced by the fossil fuel industry. It certainly looks like it if you line up the campaign contributions they've received and their positions on environmental issues. And because most people don't interact with primary sources, they're not reading scientific articles, they need to rely on people with whom they align. So uh, partisan elites whose values they share, or at least appear to share. Uh, so when most prominent Republicans start to discuss misinformation about climate change, it's, it's easy to just fall in line with that because uh, a lot of, if you're a Republican, you identify with the Republican Party, 
or if you're conservative and, and identify with other conservatives, it's easy to to align with with people of your group. Uh, so I'd say that's a, a primary influence, but definitely not the only one. These, I guess, Republican political leaders who likely are very well educated. Why why do you think it is that they're spreading this misinformation? Do you think that because they've committed themselves to being being in relationship with the fossil fuel industry, does that over time actually make them believe that climate change is not happening? Or do you think they are intentionally spreading misinformation? It's hard to say. I do give more leeway to the American public than to the elites. Uh, A lot of the elites, uh, there is even uh, video footage of them sounding the alarms about climate change and then becoming a denier after the fact. So that tells me that they probably know what's going on and that the the fossil fuel industry has convinced them or um, at least gave them enough reason through campaign contributions to to go the other way on the issue. Uh, For for people of the American public, they only have the information they have. And so I would suspect that they're more genuine doubters of climate change, but just simply through the information they receive. So that that gives me more hope for if we could uh, deploy better messages and have better social influence, we can get through to them. So it's more so the elites who are tied to the industry who are more set in their public opinions or the opinions that they'll share with the public in terms of their non-belief of climate science. Yes, I, I don't doubt that there are genuine uh, deniers among the elites, except that there there are some cases where it, it seems obvious that they've flipped, uh, whether it be just for political purposes uh, like, for example, maybe they think it would be unpopular for them to go to go the other way, but also they they risk uh, being outcast by their own party. So um, they might even secretly be pro-environment, but just just keep the, that opinion to themselves on the campaign trail. If that's the case, then do you think a shift in public consensus and their knowledge of this shift in public consensus may lead them over time to change their positions and be more pro-environment? I, I certainly hope so. And that's something that we have in mind as a strategy in, in our research. We have a fantastic set of researchers that work on the Yale climate opinion maps. And that's where the team has collected enough data and used advanced techniques to estimate the public opinion of small areas down to the congressional district area and communicating those findings about various members of Congress, well, to various members of Congress about their constituents' beliefs, we hope will make them see climate change as a more important issue because people in their district see it as an important issue. Mm. Unfortunately, uh, when climate change competes with issues people care more about, then it might it might supersede it and not affect their vote. So perhaps it might affect a situation like a ballot initiative or something even more because it's not it's not just the left or right. Um, there's there's more nuance there. Right. And part of the challenge that we're facing here is what's called climate silence. The fact that most people aren't talking about climate change at all. According to a survey from the Yale program, some 37% of Americans say they discuss the subject, despite 67% saying that it's important to them. What is this spiral of silence used to describe this phenomenon? And how does the social feedback loop tie into this? So there's a bunch of research that is built on spiral of silence theory, 
where people are scanning their environment for uh, the views of others and the potential social repercussions of expressing their views. And when people suspect that others will socially punish them or reject them as part of the in-group, they're more likely to either hesitate to express their views or not express them at all. And this leads to a spiral in which people stay silent because of fear that others will put social sanctions on them, and then they become more silent as a result. So it, it, it leads to this uh, spiral where people fail to discuss important issues. We've taken the approach of looking at, well, among the people who do discuss the issue, what's the result for them? And we've had a few papers come out this year that show some that are just looking at the relationship, people who discuss it more are more engaged in general. But then uh, I had led a project where we looked at the discussion over time and whether people learn key facts about the issue, such as the scientific consensus. And we found that uh, over a period of, of about a year, seven months to a year, uh, people do increase their belief in the scientific consensus to the extent that they discuss the issue. So that right. gives me hope that people are learning important facts through discussion. But of course, discussion in itself isn't the main uh, influencer. It's it's uh, who you're discussing with and what you're discussing. Mm. Do you think our simple misconception that climate change is more controversial than it actually is, has this preconception been holding us back from talking about it more and then doing something about it more quickly? And if so, would simply correcting our understanding of the real public consensus encourage us to be bolder in speaking about it? I think that is the case where correcting those misconceptions will be helpful. Of course, it doesn't always translate to a person-to-person -person level. So just because I know that more Americans care about climate change does not mean that I will think my conservative family members care about it or someone that I suspect disagrees with me. Mm. But when you are pleasantly surprised that someone has a position you didn't think that they had, uh, such as caring about the environment when you ordinarily think that, that they might not because of their party or the, or the way that they vote. So I found that I, I have been pleasantly surprised when I've made the first move to discuss the issue Although you know, people are hesitant because they expect that um, people are more polarized than they actually are. So given that we each have such immense power in influencing and shaping the beliefs, especially of our family members and loved ones, what are some of the best ways for us to talk about climate change in order to better engage different people? I would say the best way is to get a good understanding of of the person's values, the, the person you're trying to talk to about the issue. Uh, so we, we had a paper come out this year on engaging Christians in the issue of climate change, where we use normative appeals so that other Christians care about the issue, that there are also religious and moral appeals. So if you believe that God created the earth, then you should also believe that we should protect and defend it. Uh, so using those appeals that are consistent with people's most important issues or social identities is, is a good way in. So if someone cares about uh, social justice, there are ways to, um, to use that to engage them in climate change. So unfortunately, climate change is, is, so, is such a big issue that it touches on nearly every other issue. But I also see that as a positive for a communication strategy. 
I feel like it's really easy to just want to talk at people all the time, especially when we feel so passionate about this. So it sounds like it's really important for us to, in order for us to be effective communicators, we have to learn to listen first and learn what it is that the people we're speaking to, what it is that they care about, and then frame our messages in a way that I guess most appeals to them specifically because everybody may have different backgrounds, different values. So it's important for us to understand that prior to going in and delivering our messages. Yes, exactly. And by asking questions, you you show that you care about and value their opinion, but also that you're willing to listen to them. And by setting up that rapport, you're definitely setting the groundwork for a more productive conversation. As soon as it becomes me versus you, it's going to be difficult or impossible to get a good point across. Mm. Is there anything environmentalists in general you feel like have been doing or saying that you feel like has actually polarized public opinion on climate change or repelled certain groups of people? And if so, what is the most important thing for us to keep in mind so that we can get more people on board and not push people away? One is to not stereotype certain groups as being anti-environment. So one being conservatives and Republicans, a surprising number of conservatives and Republicans are pretty pro-climate. By conflating anti-climate and conservatism, we're losing out on a key audience that we need in order to pass climate legislation. So by seeing, well, both conservatives and liberals as heterogeneous in their climate beliefs, it gives us way more room for strategy in both engaging people that already have the correct opinions on the issue, but also persuading people that are either disengaged or dismissive of the issue. So by looking at the, the subgroups as having many subgroups within them, I think is important for better understanding how to communicate to them. Over the years, I've seen different words pop up in how people are talking about climate change. There's global warming, climate change, the climate crisis, climate catastrophe, climate emergency, extreme weather events, and so forth. To what extent can different words and language and even the tone of our messages impact how well they're received? And how do we know what words to use and when? So it's a very difficult question. Uh, one, because the, the evidence is mixed and also the conclusions keep moving. So for a long time, uh, global warming was the primary words, uh, was the primary phrase that we used. And then it switched over to climate change. And climate change was, was less polarizing initially. And then it's, it's becoming polarizing again. So we need to change the, the language again. Mm. So it, it, I think there, there are certain times and places to, to switch our language uh, so like climate crisis is certainly appropriate to fit the magnitude of the issue, but there might be times where it's not strategic to use that, uh, particularly if for a skeptical audience, you might not, you might want to start with other issues in order to get them involved in the conversation before you use any kind of polarizing language. So sometimes it's, it's good to just start with, with the issue that is not framed at all in terms of climate change. But for, for, for certain audiences, like ones that are already involved and alarmed about the issue, climate crisis would certainly be appropriate. And what are some examples of other words that we can use to initiate this conversation with, if we're not sure of the values and beliefs that the people we're speaking to hold? Uh, you could start with an entry point through something that's harmless, like 
pollution. Well, the word is harmless, not the actual <laughs> thing, of course. It's hard to be against pollution, and it's not a very polarizing issue. If you polled the American public about uh, whether they're for or against pollution, you'd see hardly anyone uh, disagreeing that pollution is a bad thing. So pointing to concrete reasons why people should care about these issues. So pollution in terms of people's health is a great entry point because everyone wants to pay attention to something that's going to affect their health. And using that as an entry point, it can be a, a successful method. So we've had some colleagues at, at George Mason University that have led some studies on this framing climate change as a health issue, and they found some initial success there. My understanding is that sometimes when we feel like issues are too overwhelming and too immense, it may make us shut down and feel paralyzed because we don't know how to start taking action in order to tackle those issues. What are your thoughts on when using the word like climate catastrophe or climate crisis, which I, I feel like does suit the immensity of the issue, when is that appropriate in getting people to take action? And when does that kind of have a negative effect in making people feel too overwhelmed to even begin? Absolutely. There are two elements that we need to focus on. One is getting people's attention. Another one is to get them to act. So getting people's attention can be really difficult because you, like you were saying, you don't want to scare them away right out of the gate. And you also want them to see the issue as solvable. So there's been some research into using emotions as a, as frames for communicating these issues. And one of the most successful ways of thinking about this is to pair fear and efficacy so you, you gain people's attention with fear. So you show them, look how important and big of a problem this is. But then you immediately follow it with uh, a message that gives them hope, uh, mm -hmm. something that frames it as doable. Because, because what happens when you induce fear? People search for a way to, to get away from it. So just to use a, a literal example, if a bear walks into the room, your immediate reaction is to flee. So just like, just like that, if you show me a message that shows that the world's going to end or that there is some kind of catastrophe that's impending, then I want to avoid it. And sometimes uh, communicators do that to a fault. So by pairing uh, a message of hope right after uh, a message that, that induces the appropriate amount of fear and attention, I think is a, an effective way to go. Mm. I was talking to the sustainability editor at Mind Body Green, and she basically echoed the same thing in terms of her strategy in writing her articles, in that she'll typically start with some large or perhaps scary statistic in the beginning of the article, but then lead into l very simple action steps that we can walk away with and feel like we can, we can start taking action right now. So it's definitely good for us to learn from what you just said. And in my personal experience, I feel like no one likes to be told what to do. We don't really like to be preached to. And we may be also shut down in the face of messages that make us feel like this issue is too immense. So I feel like sometimes it's tough because as people who are so passionate about this, it's easy to get frustrated and impatient. And we may also not want to sugarcoat the reality of the direness of the situation. So conversations can get serious and heated very easily. How do you think we can best confront our own feelings to not get in the way of us being able to communicate strategically, effectively, and with compassion to the people around us? I think one really successful way is to start with the goal. And if you if the conversation gets derailed, I think 
it's important to reiterate the goal. So you could bring it back. So it might become a back and forth about which news source says what and who's being truthful or who's lying about what information, but then bring it back to, all right, well, don't we want the highest quality of life for the most number of people? Okay, we could agree on that. And then you could proceed from there because when you hold that constant, it enables the conversation to narrow in on the most important elements and not get bogged down by uh, any individual facts. So I guess rather than getting stuck on the the smaller details of who's right and who's wrong and et cetera, if we can hold on to that common goal that we share with other people, that can help us to be able to see past those differences. Exactly. And, and by showing compassion that, and showing that you care about the other person's well-being as much as your own and that this is a collective issue. It's not that I'm doing it to score political points. It's because I care about you and the future generations. Hmm. I'd love to talk a little bit about the application of everything that we just mentioned. So let's say that I'm sitting at a restaurant with a dear friend and we're catching up to each other's lives. How would you recommend I weave in and even start talking about climate change? Because I do have some friends who are very engaged in these conversations. So with them, it's not an issue at all. I talk about it very regularly with them. But with my other friends or family members who don't really see themselves as environmentalists, sometimes it's hard to break that ice and start talking about what I'm not sure if they even want to hear about or discuss. So what are some simple tips or examples you can give us in terms of how we can initiate these conversations with people that we haven't really talked about this subject with? Yeah, I think a good way is to start with some kind of moral value that's easy to agree with, like reducing waste. Food waste is is an enormous problem in this world. And so focusing on something like that would be easy to agree with. And I could see that as a good entry point for pulling the person into a conversation where they feel comfortable. If you, if you immediately throw them into the climate science or convincing them uh, using words that they hear a lot in the media that they might not agree with, then it's going to be really difficult because you don't want them to raise their defenses before you can even make a point. Uh, so a common way to do it is through what some scholars call persuasion, where you're basically setting the stage for, for you and your conversation partner to have a productive conversation. So when I talk about starting the conversation around a moral point, so if they're religious, you could take that, that route, or if they are um, a health nut, they, you could take that route. And you could, you could just pull them in with, with an interesting fact. Like, did you know that X, Y, and Z will improve your health. And that actually got me interested in this issue where, and then you, you're able to build on, on that from there. So mm-hmm. this all ties into that same approach of knowing what's most important to them, starting with that, because that's where their attention is. And then you could probably pull them into newer territory while still keeping in mind why they should, should remain interested. And to close through your lens, knowing the role that our values, ideology, and social identity play in persuasion and social influence, what do you think we need most at a societal level to be able to first increase public consensus on climate change to match scientific consensus, and then to raise climate change to the top of our political agenda, given its urgency? So I think there are a couple ways to go about it. One is to weave it into our moral code rather than it just being another issue. 
So when it's when climate change is just one issue versus a whole bunch of others, people will choose the one that immediately sticks out to them or maybe is the top of their mind, even if it doesn't affect a lot of people. So a good example is terrorism. Terrorism is a terrible thing, but people react disproportionately to it, well, because of its coverage in the media and because of the emotional reaction it evokes. Uh, so on a strategic level, we could do a better job as communicators showing how pervasive climate change is in terms of the other issues it affects. It's a jobs issue. It's an economic issue. It's a national security issue and so on. And we've been doing a lot of that kind of work. So weaving it into the moral code of society, I think, is is a long term. It's a long term strategy, but I think an important one. Mm. And the other one is to is to talk about it, is to to voice your care about doing certain behaviors or your mindfulness over uh, reducing your carbon footprint and so on. And by showing how much you care about it, others can normatively follow. And sometimes that's more effective than trying to convince someone directly because people, like you were saying, people don't like to be told what to do or what to believe, but often are influenced by close friends and family. So having people follow your lead uh, by example would be a good way to do it. Besides really talking about climate change more and issues that we care about with our family members and loved ones, is there anything else that we can do to help raise our public consciousness around these issues that we really care about? One would be raising the voices of people who are part of groups you wouldn't ordinarily expect to be pro-environment. So there are some up-and-coming Republican groups that that talk about their pro-environment initiatives. Uh, so that will raise the norms in which people believe that other people in their social group care about it. And in that case, they don't need a lot of information to care about it themselves because if it's socially advantageous, people pretty quickly fall in line without needing to be convinced. So that isn't through direct conversation. It's through by setting an example and um, giving people sources to look up to that are part of their in-group. Before we go into our final five, I just wanted to mention real quick that if you're relatively new to Green Dreamer and would like my guidance on which episodes to listen to first among the many that are waiting for you, you can head to greendreamer.com slash embark to get my starter guide of our most popular episodes across a wide range of topics, as well as some of my personal favorites. Again, that's greendreamer.com slash embark. If you've been around a while and would like to become a patron of the show to support this work, access extended content, and our Green Dreamer network, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. Either way, thank you so much for being here and for your huge heart and dedication. For now, moving on to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? So a social media account that I follow that's been uplifting is Catherine Hayhoe. She's a climate scientist at Texas Tech University. And so not only is she an incredibly highly cited climate scientist, she's an outstanding communicator on the subject. And we often uh, follow her lead on that. So she's been very inspiring because she has both the expertise in the actual climate science, but also understands all these important points about communication. Mm. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and motivated? My mantra in that realm is, I didn't come this far to only come this far. 
And the reason why I like that one is because it tells me how much I've done. So I could be grateful for the work that I've put in to get here and the progress that I've made, but also tells me that there's always more work to be done. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? Uh, To eat less processed foods. What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? So this would be in, in, in line with the theme of this podcast and uh, in which I'm trying to convince others to act more sustainably. Mm-hmm. So that in itself isn't, isn't being more sustainable, but I think that getting more, uh, more people on board will help themselves be more sustainable. Aside from those, I'm also doing, you know, eating less meat, particularly red meat and uh, more cycling rather than driving. What makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? I'd say seeing other amazing people around me do great work. You think that being at the forefront of this fight could be discouraging, and it sometimes is. But I'm inspired by all the amazing researchers, communicators, and advocates that are continuing to do great work. So despite any short-term setbacks, they're, they're continuing to put in great effort. And when I see them doing their great work, it inspires me to do mine. Well, Green Dreamer, to learn more and stay updated on Matt's work, you can head to mattgoldberg100.com. And you can also follow him on Twitter at mattgoldberg100. I'll have this linked in the show notes as well. And you can find all of that at greendreamer.com. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your expertise with us. What final words of wisdom would you like to leave us with as Green Dreamers? Uh, just to get out there and talk to talk to people about the issue and uh, don't be afraid to speak your mind, um, but also consider what what other people care about and uh, to keep them engaged and not not let this issue uh, become, you know, secondary to so many other issues that it encompasses. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. To support the show, access extended content, and join our Green Dreamer network, you can head to greendreamer.com support for more information. To receive weekly solutions-driven news around ecological regeneration and intersectional sustainability, you can sign up to our free Green Dreamer Weekly Digest at greendreamer.com. And if you'd like to come say hey to let me know that you're tuning in, you can find me on Instagram at greendreamerpodcast and at Shane. Finally, as we're wrapping up here, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.